We come now to God's Word, found in the Gospel of Luke, verses 5 through 25. We're continuing on in the Gospel of Luke this morning, verses 5 through 25 of chapter 1. And you can find that on page 1016 in the Pew Bible in front of you, page 1016. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and, un and unable to speak until that day that these things take place. And because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the, people, as the, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that see, he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, may these words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. The silence was deafening. 
It's an odd phrase that we use to describe the feeling, to describe the experience of expecting sound but hearing nothing. The silence was deafening. Remember just after Benjamin was born, we slept with a sound machine in our room. At first I was kind of annoyed. It was hard to sleep with all of that sound, that white noise blasting at you. But I tell you what, after six months when Benjamin moved out of our room into the nursery and the sound machine moved with him, I kind of had a hard time sleeping. It was too quiet. The silence was uncomfortable. Imagine 400 years of silence. How uncomfortable would that be? Well, that is exactly what the people of Israel experienced leading up to the story that we are about to work our way through. 400 years of silence. The people who had received the law of Moses, who had received the beauty of the Psalter, who had heard the testimony of the great prophets, one day heard nothing. 400 years of deafening silence. Where was God? What was He doing? Add on to this the Roman captivity that Israel was in at this point in time. Once again, they were under the thumb of a foreign empire. Under the thumb of vassal kings. Where was God? What had come of His promises to His people? Perhaps you felt this way. The silence for you definitely hasn't been 400 years. But maybe it's just been a season. A season of spiritual dryness. Of doubt. Of suffering. God feels distant. His promises seem a world away. The silence is deafening. Our passage this morning speaks into that silence. It speaks a word of assurance to the people of God. To the people of God 2,000 years ago and to the people of God today. It speaks a word of assurance. In our sin and in our suffering, God sees, God hears, and God answers. These are the major notes, the structure that we will use as we work our way through our passage this morning. God sees, God hears, and God answers. So first, God sees. Go back to verse 5 with me again. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Our story begins with a priest named Zechariah. 
which is a fitting name given the context of silence in this story. Zechariah means God has remembered. God has remembered His people. He's not forgotten them. He hasn't forgotten His promises. Even in the silence, He's seen. Now what do we learn about Zechariah? We learn that he was of the division of Abijah. And that he had a wife from the daughter of, daughters of Aaron who was named Elizabeth. What Luke is doing here is he's establishing Zechariah's priestly credentials. He was from a long line of priests. And his wife Elizabeth was from a long line of priests. And not only this, our passage goes on to say in verse 6 that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Zechariah was a faithful and righteous priest. And the role of a priest was to represent God before the people and to represent the people before God. And so in many ways in this story, both literally and figuratively, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth represent all faithful Israel. All of those who have continued to live in covenant faithfulness towards God. All of those who have continued to live righteously in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now why does this matter? Because God always preserves a remnant. Even during the deafening silence of 400 years, God was faithful to preserve a, a remnant, a righteous remnant of true worshipers. What we'll find in this story is that God continues to see these righteous ones. He continues to see their faithfulness. Even when Israel had in many ways turned their face away from God. God had not turned His face away from them. He had preserved a righteous remnant, people who are worshiping faithful, and he, and he did that by His grace. He preserved the people who He looked upon with great favor. Now we need to remember that, biblically speaking, to be righteous is not about moral perfection. It is those of faith who are children of Abraham. It is those who live by faith who are called righteous before God. It is those who have placed their faith and trust in their covenant God who are declared blameless and holy. Zechariah wasn't perfect. He was far from perfect. We'll find that out later on in the story. But he did live by faith in his covenant-keeping God, and God saw that. So it was with the remnant of Israel. God continued to see the faithfulness of his people during the 400 years of silence. He had not turned his face away. He had not forgotten his promises. He remained faithful to the people who he had preserved as a righteous remnant. Here's what this means for us. No matter how bad it looks out there, God is still at work in here. He is faithful to His covenant people. He's faithful to His church. 
He sees us. He sees our simple, feeble, dependent faithfulness. And by His grace and mercy declares us to be righteous and holy. He sees our righteousness because it is a righteousness given by faith. And He sees our righteousness which is given by faith and yet He sees our sinful, needful condition. In the days of Zechariah and Elizabeth, they looked forward to the day when God would deal with their sin definitively. We have the privilege of looking back on that day. They waited for it in expectation. And as they waited, God saw their sinful condition. He saw their inability to save themselves. He saw their inability to make themselves righteous. And he was about to act in history to do something about it. He was about to act in history to bring justice through his Messiah. God had seen the faith of of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Faith in the Messiah to come. Faith in God to save and he had declared them righteous, not ignoring their sin, but fully intending to exact the full penalty for it on his son. And this is so important because of the next thing that we learn about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Have in mind the declared righteousness of Zechariah and Elizabeth as I read verse 7 with you. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Even though Zechariah and Elizabeth had lived lives of covenant faithfulness, even though they'd been declared righteous by faith, they were suffering. The text doesn't even begin to let us go in the direction of, well, what did they do to deserve it? What sin led to their barrenness? Now, this was not a judgment against their sin. It's very clear from the text that this was not a judgment against their sin. They were walking righteously and blamelessly, and yet they suffered through a long life of barrenness. It was a shameful thing to be barren. It came with such a stigma. Why would God let let this happen to his righteous ones? Did he see? Again, in many ways, Zechariah and Elizabeth's story, it acts as a representative for Israel's story. The faithful remnant of Israel found itself spiritually barren under the crushing weight of oppression and suffering. Why would God let this happen to His righteous people? Did He see? I'm not going to fully resolve this tension at this point in the sermon. That comes later. But yes, God sees. He sees the suffering of His righteous ones. It is not a foreign concept biblically for God's people to experience 
suffering, for His righteous ones to experience suffering. But brothers and sisters, we always experience suffering under the assurance of God's unconditional promise. A promise that is represented well in Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Oh, that is hard to hear. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers. He delivers him out of them all. Friends, God sees. And He promises to deliver. That is the assurance that we can have. But moving forward in the passage, we find another point of assurance. An assurance that we can have in our sin and in our suffering. First, God sees. Second, God hears. Back at verses 8 through 10 with me. Now while he was on now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense Zechariah was one of 300 priests in his division the division of Abijah. And his division only served twice a year for one week each. He was just an ordinary, run-of-the-mill country priest. And yet he was chosen by lot to enter the temple and to burn incense, most likely during the evening sacrifice. A priest could only serve in this function once in their life. It was a tremendous honor. It was the pinnacle of Zechariah's career as a priest. Many priests would never get this honor. But yet Zechariah was chosen by lot, by chance. But friends, this was no accident. God's providence brought Zechariah to this place. The priest would offer incense at the time of the evening sacrifice as a symbol of, of the sacrifice being raised up to the Lord with the prayers of His people. That is why it says here that at the time of the evening sacrifice, there was a multitude outside praying. Zechariah, in offering this incense, brought with him the prayers of the people and offered them up to the Lord with the sacrifice, lifting it up to them covered in the blood. You can only imagine what he was thinking at this moment. The honor of what he was about to do. The pain that he carried with him. The prayers of the people. What do you think he asked for? God in His providence doesn't tell us. There's no prayer recorded here. But we've been brought here into this moment of truth. God's righteous, suffering servant interceding on behalf of the people on the heels of 400 years of silence. 
What's going to happen? Look back at verses 11 through 13 with me. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Into the silence... God speaks, and he tells Zechariah through his servant Gabriel that he has heard his prayer. He has heard the unspoken prayer of Zechariah. He's heard his desires. He's heard his needs. He's heard his laments. And again, Zechariah represents the people of Israel here. At the time of prayer, when the desires, the needs, the laments of the people were lifted up before God with the sacrifice, God says to His people, I have heard you. I have heard your prayers. I have not stopped up my ears. Friends, even in the silence, God hears your prayers. Let that truth sit with you for a moment. That's not the main point of this passage by any means, but it is a point, a point of encouragement and assurance. God hears the prayers of His faithful saints. And I say that acknowledging how hard it can be to feel that that is true. Sometimes, that's impossible to believe. Especially in the silence. Especially in suffering. When the promises of God feel a world away. In that place, Christian, anchor yourself to the rock-solid truth that God hears your prayers. He knows your needs. He knows the desires of your heart even better than you do. I promise you that. And He hears your cries of lament. He hears the cries of sadness that are in your heart and He meets you in them. Not only does God hear, God answers. That's what we'll see in the final portion of this passage. God answers His people. What does angel Gabriel prophesy to Zechariah here? Look back at the end of verse 13 and then verse 14. Gabriel tells him, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. The name John means God has been gracious. Zechariah's prayer, the prayers of the people, have been answered with the abundant grace of God. God has seen their suffering, He's heard of their need. 
And He has answered them by His grace. And this answer comes in the promised birth of a child to a woman who was once barren. Now, if you're familiar with your Bibles, this situation should sound very familiar to you. A promised birth of a child to someone who was previously barren, it should sound very familiar. This same exact thing has happened several times throughout the life of God's people. Most famously in the life of Abraham and Sarah. And then again in the life of Jacob and Rachel. And then again in Samson's parents. The account of which is strikingly similar here to the account of Luke. We read the story of Samson's parents in Judges 13, 2-3. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. This is the formula. God sees the barren. He hears their cry. And He answers them with the promise of new birth. Now, why does this type of story occur over and over and over again in the Scriptures. Why do we find it again here? It's not a coincidence. It's not just because it's a nice story. There's a deeper meaning here. The meaning's found all the way back in Genesis 3, where we find both a problem and a promise. We find a problem our sin and rebellion, which leads to death. We find a promise. God graciously giving the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Problem and promise. God promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15, that he was going to send a seed. He was going to send a child who would make this right. That is why there are so many barrenness birth narratives in the Scriptures. It's emphasizing something. It's emphasizing a question. Where is the seed? Where is the child? Where is the one who would come? It wasn't Isaac. It wasn't Joseph. It wasn't Samson. See, even the miraculously given children of Israel did not fulfill this promise. Up until this point in the life of God's people, it was as if Israel itself was barren. Where is the seed? Where is the child who would take away our barrenness, not just for a time, but forever? This is the context 
of God's answer to Zechariah here. A child will be born to your wife who is barren, Zechariah. But even this child is not the child. John is not the substance of this promise. John is better compared with another barrenness birth narrative that we've yet to mention. The story of Hannah and Samuel in 1 Samuel 1-2. through Where we find that Hannah is barren. She cries out to God. And God hears her prayer. He gives her a son who she dedicates to the Lord. His name is Samuel, which means the one who was asked for. What was Samuel's role in the kingdom of God? What function did he play in the kingdom? He wasn't the substance of the promise. He was a prophet who prepared God's people for the coming of the king. Brothers and sisters, I love when Scripture rhymes like this, don't you? Samuel and John. God's chosen servants, His prophets, both miraculously given to prepare the way for the king. And what would God's servant John be like? The angel goes on to say in verses 15 through 17, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In many ways, this passage serves as the bridge between the Old and the New Testament. This passage is the bridge between what God had promised to do in the Old Testament and what he was about to do in the New Testament. John is the substance of that bridge. Some have called John the last great prophet of the Old Testament era. He was the final prophet who would make ready for the people of God a people who were prepared. He'd make ready his people for a king. This is God's answer to a barren and suffering people. His answer to the deafening silence A new prophet was coming to proclaim God's word and to prepare God's people for the king. Gabriel here describes several tasks of John's prophetic mission. First, he says that John will turn many of God's people, many of the children of Israel, towards the Lord their God. John, as a prophet, would lead his people to repentance. He would turn their hearts away from idols and back to faith in the living God. Then it says that John would go before the people in the spirit and the power of Elijah 
John is compared with Elijah throughout the gospel accounts. Because John, like Elijah, he preached a message of repentance, which was demonstrated by miraculous works of the Holy Spirit. But there's even more to it than this. This verse is almost a direct quotation of Malachi 4, 5, and 6, where the prophet says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. These are the final words of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5 and 6. These are the final words of the Old Testament. Elijah is coming. He's coming before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Luke here picks up right where Malachi left off. Elijah's here. The prophet has come. A new thing is happening. God has answered his people with his prophet. And this prophet has come to prepare God's people for the king. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is a reference to the prophecy from Isaiah 45 and 6 where Isaiah prophesies. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. This prophecy here in Isaiah, which is echoed here in Luke, is filled with royal language. What is in mind is a glorious, beautiful highway that is constructed for a king. Every path made straight, every hill made low, every valley lifted up so that the king could come. So that the people could see the glory of the king. You see, John had no glory in himself. His glory was found in preparing God's people to see the glory of their king. And preparing God's people for Christ. And how would he prepare them? He would direct their hearts towards the promise that something better was coming. And the substance of that promise was and is the king. For people living in silence and suffering, for people living in their sin, the purpose of God's prophet was to direct God's people towards God's promise that a new king was coming. Another child would be born. And this child would not just be a servant of the promise. 
He would be the substance of the promise. He would be the one who would crush the head of the serpent. His too would be a miraculous birth. He too would be a prophet. But he would not just be a prophet. He would be prophet, priest, and king. Brothers and sisters, just like in the days of Zechariah and Elizabeth, our hearts need directing. Our hearts need directing towards something better, towards our promised king. Because just like people in the days of Zechariah and Elizabeth, when we experience the suffering of this life, when we struggle with the reality of our own sin, when God seems far away and the silence is deafening, it can be so tempting to begin to listen to the siren songs of this world. To begin to turn to false assurances. Certainly this is true in the days of Zechariah and Elizabeth. When more and more the people turned aside to the assurances of a political Messiah, the assurances of religious performance, the assurances of their national heritage, and so their hearts needed redirecting, redirecting to the, promised, the promise of God, the promised seed, the coming king. This is what you and I need as well. As we come to study this book of Luke, our goal is that our hearts would be redirected, our hearts would be prepared to trust not in the things of this world, but in the promise of God. His promise to save us through the coming seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. Because the seed has come. We have the substance, brothers and sisters. Our hearts need directing towards that. When the silence is deafening, this is the answer that we need. A voice crying, trust in the promise of God. Find your assurance in the seed of the woman who has come to save you. Moving forward in this passage, we see that, at least at first, Zechariah doesn't believe this promise. It seems almost too good to be true to him. So he asks for a sign. And a sign is given, but not the way that he had hoped. He is made mute until the day that the child is born. There's some irony here. The one who had been waiting in silence was himself made silent. <laughs> until the Lord would send the one who would be his voice crying in the wilderness. Again, into the silence, the Lord would speak, the Lord would answer. Towards the end of this passage, we finally hear Elizabeth react to all of this. After God keeps his promise and brings a child to the womb of this barren woman, here's what she says at the end of verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. 
Sometimes in biblical narratives, the, character, the characters say way more than they know. Meaning their words have so much more interpretive value than even they could have known at the time. Elizabeth here says that the Lord has looked upon her. God has seen. God has heard what must have been thousands of prayers from her. And God has answered her. He's brought her a child. A child who has taken away her reproach among the people. There are echoes here of the cries of Rachel in Genesis 30, 22-23, where it says, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. God remembers His children. He sees their pain. God listens to their prayers. He hears. And He answers. But notice how He answers. Notice how Rachel and then Elizabeth interpret His answer. God takes away their reproach. Meaning literally, He takes away the source of their mocking and disgrace. Elizabeth here is saying way more than she could have known at the time. Because in this moment, she has in mind the disgrace of her physical barrenness. The reproach that came with her physical barrenness. And yes, God by His grace took that away and provided her with a son. But the one who her son would prepare the way for the one who her son was coming to make straight the path for, that child would be the one who would take away her reproach, not just for a time, but for eternity. He would take away her reproach, the reproach of her sin. He would take away her spiritual barrenness. The barrenness that comes from being separated from God. He would carry her shame. He would carry her disgrace on Himself and take it to the cross. In fact, in Mark 15, the root of this word here, reproach, is used to describe the language of those who were crucified with Christ. It says that those who were crucified with Him reviled Him or reproached Him. You see, God was doing so much more here than just giving Elizabeth a son. He was preparing to give her His Son. Her, his Son who would bear her reproach. An infinitely more gracious gift than her Son who was named God is Gracious. I want to be sensitive here because I know in a room this size there are families struggling to have children. There are families struggling with barrenness. And my heart breaks for you. 
And I know it is impossible to hear a sermon like this and not think, why not me? If God can do it, why doesn't He? What I can tell you is this. Christians, whether you struggle with this particular issue or another issue, God sees your pain. God hears your cries. He hears your prayers. I cannot tell you that He will answer them in the way that you hope. But I can tell you something better. I can tell you that God's answer to the deepest desire of your heart, His answer to your deepest need, His answer to your most gut-wrenching lament is His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the promise to you. In the pain, in the silence, Christ is enough for you. He bears your pain. He knows what it feels like. He bears your shame. He bears your reproach. He nailed it to the cross so that in Him you now have access to the Father and the communion and the comfort of His Spirit. This is the substance of this Gospel. The Gospel of Luke that our hearts would be directed to this promise, that our hearts would be directed to repentance and faith in this Savior. He offers something so much better and something so much fuller than just the momentary deliverance and momentary answer of our prayers. He Himself is the substance of the promise of God. And it is in Him and through Him that we have all that we need. Christian, in your suffering and in your sin, be assured. Take hold of the fact that God sees, that God hears, and that God answers. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we praise and thank you that you are a God who hears our prayers. You've seen us in our sin and have given us salvation in, in your Son. He has borne our reproach and our sins in his body on the tree. We praise you for the glorious plan of salvation that you have revealed to us in your word a plan to bring forth the seed of the woman who would forever rid us of our spiritual barrenness and bring us to new life in you. From before all eternity, you purposed to ransom a people for yourself by the blood of your Son. In Him we have forgiveness. In Him we are made new. O oh, Father, by your Word and Spirit, fasten our hearts to Christ. Prepare our hearts to rest on your promises. Keep us from false assurances. In times of silence and suffering, press us into the promise and provision found in Christ that He would be all in all. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.